celebrating their 65th anniversary this coming week. Uh, that's a long time not only to live, that's a long time to be married. <laughs> we had wanted to have a little get-together next Sabbath with them, but her health has not been very strong here the last few weeks. She's pretty weak and and uh, is... She's been as regular as the clock when it comes to being here on Sabbath for so many, many years, but she's missed some off and on here lately over the last few months because she's just not up to it. Uh, It's hard to get her to eat enough. She's always been bone thin almost, and and, uh, food doesn't seem to do much that way. So uh, at least we can say congratulations for 65 years together and uh, hope for some more as this thing begins to wind up and the kingdom of God is getting not far away. Gene has often expressed the desire to be able to see all these things happen and be a part of it and I certainly hope that she can be. Remember Ezra 3 and there were still ancient men around who had seen the destruction of the temple in the days of Nebuchadnezzar and 70 years later they saw it being rebuilt and were overjoyed to see that happening and we see that story of course in Haggai for the former temple of Herbert Armstrong and the Worldwide Church of God died and will now be replaced by another and Haggai even indicates that there will be old men around again to see the completion of that. So it's got to be in the lifetimes of the old men who saw the first one. And that's fast receding into the dust, into the background. So it can't be too long, lest we all age and die. So hopefully Gene will get to see these things happen. I have here a card that was uh, sent by Dennis and Libby Schaefer. Uh, We signed a card to them, I think it was over Passover, uh, to send them, because they have been with us in the past, and then they've come back, even though not officially part of this uh, congregation, they've been back to the Feast of Tabernacles, I guess two or three times, I don't remember exactly how many, but uh, it was thought nice to send them a card when we sent several out to those who couldn't be here for the spring holy days. And here's a card he received, we received in return, and he asked me to share it with you, so I'm going to. It says that he misses us, and that we sent a nice card, and here is his, his or their reply. It says, Dear friends and brethren, we wanted to thank you for the nice card you sent to us. We were really surprised to receive a card signed by so many of you. Thank you. Lib and I are doing okay. We have reasonably good health, even though we're growing older and have aches and pains we never had 20, 30 years ago. I think we basically kind of understand that, do we not? Some of us. It is interesting to watch our children live their lives. At times, one just wishes he could suffer some of their learning pains, but that is not how life works. We all have to make choices and hopefully learn that really God's ways are the best way to live. Right now, we're kept busy planting another garden. We raise a big garden and share it with our children and grandchildren. I also look forward to the time when we can all be together again. I believe that God will show us what is His truth, and we can then be all of one mind. 
At the present time, we don't all see to eye to eye on some issues, so I have made the choice that the best thing for all of us is for Lib and I to withdraw ourselves for a time. Thanks again for the card, and we do love you all very much, your brother and sister Dennis and Libby. That was a very nice note. I've appreciated their attitude for some years. There are a few things that we have learned that they have not learned the same way at this point. Uh, But they've chosen not to be enemies. They've chosen to still be friends and hope to get together again. And uh, I guess it was two or three years ago, time goes by so quickly, but uh, Dennis mentioned to me that they would not come that year to the Feast of Tabernacles because he was afraid that the areas that there is disagreement, whether it be Passover or, or some other area, that he was afraid he would say something that would cause division. So he felt it was better that even though they wanted to be here with us, he thought it was better that they not, lest their presence cause a a ripple or, or difficulties or division and so on. And I thought that was a, a wonderful attitude for him to have, that he was being so very careful not to cause any difficulties that way. So uh, I think this reflects that as well. They hope to be back together and they hope we all understand and see things the same way and they'll be back here. Uh, And there are a few things. They understand that this is the right place to be. They understand that we know what we're doing overall. But there are a few issues that uh, hopefully will be ironed out in time. I've been talking for a couple, three sermons now about finding the peace and righteousness of God. And last week we started to examine the scriptures, uh, all of them in the Bible, that mention the vine and the fig tree. And how that is a representation of peace and ultimately prosperity. uh, So that each man is free to pursue his goals, his purposes, his family, his life without difficulty uh, from outside forces or being forced to go to war or uh, all of the things that can happen within this world and society and culture that keep us from being able to pursue those things without distractions and difficulties. So we went through the time of Solomon and a couple of verses in Kings showing that during Solomon's reign there was peace, uh, there was prosperity, that times were pretty good during his reign. But then in Jeremiah 8, we saw a reverse of this, a time when peace and prosperity were taken away and the vine and the fig tree no longer produced. Uh, That was in verse 13 of chapter 8 in Jeremiah where he says, I will surely consume them, says the Eternal. There shall be no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree, and the leaf shall fade, and the things that I have given them shall pass away from them. So God says that there will be blessing, but it will be taken away. And we had, I think, great blessings in Worldwide Church of God when the truth of God was revived by Herbert Armstrong 
and the Sabbath and the holy days and many things we came to understand were once again established. And then that was all taken away. He says in verse 14, Why do we sit still? Assemble yourselves, and let us enter into the defense cities, and let us be silent there. For the Eternal our God has put us to silence, and given us water of gall to drink, because we have sinned against the Eternal. So people who have had the vine and fig tree taken away, as has happened to the church, spiritual Israel first, they say, what are we doing? Why are we sitting here? Let's go to a protected place. So they formed organizations uh, here and there, splinter groups, some small, some larger, and drank water of gall, the bitterness of having everything fall apart, and we have sinned against the eternal. Now, I don't know how much acknowledgement there was <laughs> among the church membership as a whole about whether we have sinned or not, uh, because, well, they do, it's just that they don't say we, they say you. All you Laodiceans that are not in our group. So they acknowledge sin, it's just not personal. In other words, we're the exception. As I said last week about uh, how we think that we can say whatever we wish because we're the exception and everybody else is a gossip. But what we're saying is okay. Maybe you remember that sermon, I'll remind you briefly and we'll move on. But I think we needed to address that in a very serious way. None of us are exceptions. Anyway, verse 15, We looked for peace, but no good came, and for a time of health, and behold, trouble. Isn't that pretty well a description of the church over the last 25 years or so? Now, these things always bear in mind are dual and that these things are now coming upon the nation very, very rapidly and it will get as bad in the nation as it has been in the church. That's pretty bad. So it says then in verse 16, The snorting of his horses was heard from Dan. The whole land trembled at the sound of the neighing of his strong ones, for they are come and have devoured the land and all that is in it, the city and those that dwell therein. I reminded you that, of course, Dan was the northernmost tribe, and God says the northern army, the Assyrian, is going to come against our land. Uh, and it was the Assyrian, the Dukachas, the Assyrians, who came against the church and destroyed it, uh, essentially. And now we have the Assyrian, probably the Russians, again, as Dukach was a Russian, uh, ready to come from the north and destroy our nation on a physical level. So, we see both. For behold, God speaking, I will send serpents, cockatrices among you, which will not be charmed, and they shall bite you, says the Eternal. Uh, this, this is actually going to happen. It's not just the possibility, but it's real. When I would comfort myself against sorrow, my heart is faint in me. Don't we experience those emotions? And as we see this thing having come on the church and the sorrow that it has brought upon us and confusion and frustration, now we're looking at it with a little different emotion in terms of it coming on our physical nation, and that is more foreboding and fear as opposed to sorrow. 
because we see it about to occur, and it's very alarming. Now they're talking about coming and shooting people and killing people in various and sundry ways. Not just spiritual death, as we saw in the church, but now physical death as well. And there was no comfort in the church, and now there will be no comfort in the nation. Verse 19, Behold the voice of the cry of the daughter of my people, because of them that dwell in a far country. Is not the eternal in Zion? Is not her king in her? Now that's a question. We know Hebrews 12, 22, and 3 tell us that the church is spiritual Zion and Jerusalem. So the question is asked here, when you see all this trouble coming, is not the Lord in Zion? Maybe implying that he is not essentially in it. When will he come to it? Is another question. Is not her king in her? Do you see the mighty works of God and Christ in the church today? Do you see it here? Where do you see it? Nowhere. The devastation is essentially complete within the church and will be within the nation. Why have they provoked me to anger with their graven images and with strange vanities? All kinds of gods that we have, or all kinds of things we put ahead of God, however you want to term it, is idolatry. Interesting verse in verse 20. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. Now here he's talking of the devastation of church and the world. And apparently some of this trouble comes, and the fall harvest comes. Summer is ended, and yet we'll still not be saved. Is this speaking of the church? Is not the Lord in Zion? I'll add a little speculation as we go along when we get to some other scriptures about the time of year that some of these things may happen. Uh, as we know, Joel says that things will, the former and latter rains will come in the first, first month implied very strongly. And yet I don't know for sure exactly what that means because historically in the end time church, Many, many things have occurred in the first month of the Gregorian calendar, in January. I can't, at the moment, think of any one that happened in the first month of God's calendar. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't keep God's calendar. He makes it very clear the Passover is to be at the time that you came out of Egypt at Passover time. So, his calendar is very much in effect but it may just be, since he's dealing with the physical nations of Israel, along with the church that is in and amongst them, that he has gone ahead and used the first month to a great degree. I don't know that, but as I look at what has happened, uh, the plain truth started in January of 31, uh, and Herbert Armstrong died in January of 86. So there have been good and bad that have happened. Uh, certain organizations started 
in January that are part of the church today that I think may be prominent before things are over. And uh, interesting things have happened even to us here. We divided the land up and took individual possession in January of 03. So uh, there's lots. I mean, I've got a list that long I've written down of things that happened in worldwide uh, in terms of January. So that is, in one sense, a first month. So who knows exactly how God will apply it. He keeps us guessing. But here we have an implication of sometime after the Feast of Tabernacles. Harvest is done, and the summer is ended. So you have the uh, fall equinox, which ends summer and begins uh, fall, or the winter season. Early summer ends and fall begins, is what I'm trying to say. And yet, we're not yet saved, it says. For the hurt of the daughter of my people am I hurt. I am black. Astonishment has taken hold on me. Black, uh, in this prophetic reference, means from famine. Famine of the word, famine of food. Uh, famine of the word has, has hit the church. Famine of food is about to hit the nation. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no healing? That's what that means. Is there no physician there? Why then is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered? Why has this gone on now for decades and gotten worse and worse? And why is our nation about to be destroyed? Is there no one to heal? Is Christ in his church? Is he in the physical nation? In the physical nation, not at all. In the church, nominally. Not in the way that he shall be, as we shall see before we're done today, I hope. Do you ever get frustrated like Jeremiah did? I'll read on a little bit in verse 9. Chapter 9, I mean. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Do you get to the point where the tears dry up, your head aches because of all that we have been through and are still experiencing, and you get to the point where the tears won't even come? I wish I had a head full of water so I could cry. But maybe we're so drained emotionally that even the effort of crying becomes a difficulty. And then he says, Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place of wayfaring men, that I might leave my people and go from them. For they be all adulterers and an assembly of treacherous men, and they bend their tongues like the bow for lives, and they are not valiant for the truth. Jeremiah says, I am so frustrated with what I see around me, that I'd rather just be on vacation away from this and among wayfaring men. In other words, would I rather be where the tourists go rather than where people live, is essentially what he's applying. So there was a certain amount of emotional frustration with Jeremiah. And when you have everyone against you and showing you in the outhouse hole and things like that, it, it can be kind of wearing after a while, you know. 
But those were the emotions he was experiencing here with what is going on. In other words, does a certain weariness sometimes overcome us emotionally? We get frustrated and weary and tired and just wish this would all come to an end. I know I certainly do and pray that that day comes soon. Let's go from there. There's one more of these reverse scriptures that I think we... Well, I set myself to talk about vine and fig tree and all the scriptures in it, and then I discovered there were some that weren't so peaceful where it was taken away. So if you're going to address it, you've got to address them all, not just the ones that are nice. So here in Joel 1, we see more of the same, really, of what uh, Jeremiah was agonizing over. Here he says, The word of the Eternal came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you old men, and give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. Now, it's interesting that he addresses the old men, because this is an end-time prophecy uh, leading up to the day of the Lord, and Joel is known as the book about the day of the Lord. So we've already, in the announcements at least, I didn't say it in the sermon, but in Ezra 3 it talks about how the ancient men would be around who saw the temple rebuilt after Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it, and they were still around uh, over 70 years later to see the building of the latter or later temple. So they were well over 70 had they been, young, uh, been old enough to remember the temple and then to see it rebuilt. That would have probably put them at at least 75, maybe 80 or older. And in Haggai, it says the same thing that there will be old men who saw the glory of the original temple, the former temple, Herbert Armstrong, and the latter temple, which is yet to be built before us, both spiritually and, I think, physically as well. So, who does Joel, here in the end time prophecy, address? Hear this, you old men, first. It's absolutely timely for right now. The church is basically made up today of old people. Not just men, but he addresses the men. There's a lot of old women around too. So old people, people that saw what was and are experiencing and going through living what he is about to tell them. You old men, and give ear all you inhabitants of the land. So, first of all, he addresses old men and then the rest of the inhabitants. And I look here and I see old people and I see a few younger people. So he's talking to everybody here, not just a select audience. Has this been in your days or even in the days of your fathers? What I'm about to tell you, has this been? Was this historically true? Now, my father became part of the church back in the early 50s. And what I have experienced in the last 25 years, he didn't see. I know Jean uh, Terry tells me that her mother and some of her family listened to Mr. Armstrong back in the 40s. And what they saw then as a developing church, they didn't see what's happened today. They just saw back then as it was growing. Or even in the days of your fathers. 
tell you your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children another generation. So he says, tell your children are growing up the way things used to be, and then tell them that these things will occur again generation after generation in spite of the mess you see yourself in right now. In other words, things were better, and they're going to get better again. That's what we should be telling our children. That's why I went through that Dave Hodges article a few weeks ago showing his frustration at telling his son what's about to happen to America. And there's no good news to tell him. You're likely to die, son. Is that what you want to tell your kids? No. But it's true, and he knows it. So my purpose there was to show that if we do what God says, we'll be able to do what Joel is talking about here. And our children and their children in the millennium will see the good and won't have to remember the evil that we are currently going through. Joel is about as an end-time book as there is, okay? Culminating in the day of the Lord. So it's talking about the events leading up to that time. Meantime, verse 4, in the real world, he's predicting this will happen. Verse 4, that which the palmer worm has left, the locust eats, and that which the locust has left has the canker worm eaten, and that which the canker worm ate uh, left has the caterpillar eaten. So, one after the other, things have happened, and it's just gotten worse and worse, hasn't it? The church is splintered and split and divided and been eaten up by detestable bugs, you might say. Awake, you drunkards. And I don't think that just means physically drunk, but spiritually drunk. can mean both, but uh, the emphasis here is spiritual. And weep and howl, all you drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. So, new understanding, new doctrine, a grasp of what is going on in the church has eluded them. They're still drunk on the wine of old doctrine that we learned, and yet, with that doctrine, in spite of that doctrine, we see things that came apart. Now, we reviewed at the beginning of this series that the truth would set us free, that the truth would be a help and a comfort and an assurance to us. And yet, though we had a great deal of truth, it didn't save us and preserve us, did it? Not the truth alone. And we'll get to the reasons that the truth itself cannot save you unless certain things are done and followed. We won't get there today, but we will eventually. Because I want us to pull out of this. I want us to overcome it. I want us to be in the good graces of God again. And we have to examine Scripture to determine how that is to be accomplished. You know, when a dam is leaking, the engineers all get out there and they look at the dam and they try to figure out what's making this leak. What is causing the failure? How do we fix it before it all comes apart and drowns everybody downstream? What do we do about it? You know, they have to face reality. 
a disaster is in the making. What can we do? And when we see a disaster, spiritually speaking, in the church of God, we need to think very seriously about what do we do lest everybody be drowned. I mean, there, there are hard issues, there are difficulties that have to be faced realistically in order to resolve the situation and to save the day, if you will. We'll get to more of that. But right now we're dealing here in Shoal with the fact that it is coming apart and nobody sees any answers and they don't have any new understanding. They're going along with the things that they knew before, but things aren't getting better. Nothing's getting better. For a nation has come up upon my land, strong and without number, whose teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he had the cheek teeth of a great lion. And verse 7 is the verse, or one of the verses here, that uh, led me to this passage. Verse 7, He has laid my vine waste and barked my fig tree. He has made it clean bare and cast it away. The branches thereof are made white. So these bugs that we talked about at the beginning even stripped the bark off the fig tree. Isaiah 5 talks about how his vine is destroyed, speaking of the church. So here is confirmation and uh, Joel of the same thing. And he, he uses the vine and the fig tree in particular because the peace, the prosperity, has been taken away. Spiritually, not yet physically, but it's coming upon us soon. Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. The husband that didn't show up. The husband that got killed. The husband that never was. She's still a virgin. Because of the conditions and the circumstances that we find ourselves in today. Here we are. Our young people have no one to date, no one to marry. We're in a very sad, difficult circumstance. It's talked about right here. What you and I, our families, are experiencing right this moment. The meal offering and the drink offering is cut off from the house of the eternal. The priests, the Lord's ministers mourn. The ministry overall has no answer. Don't know what to do. Not one of her sons is able to lead her out of this, it says there in Isaiah 50. One or two. Fifty-one, I guess it is. Uh, the field is wasted. The land mourns, for the corn is wasted. The new wine is dried up. The oil languishes. Everything is bad. Be you ashamed, O you husbandmen. Howl, O you vine dressers, for the wheat and for the barley, because the harvest of the field is perished. The great harvest that we thought we were getting in worldwide, new people all the time, Growing leaps and bounds just disappeared, gone. And even those that were there are mostly gone. The vine, here, here he uses the same analogy again, verse 12. The vine is dried up and the fig tree languishes. The pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree, even all the trees of the field are withered because joy is withered away from the sons of men. So not just the vine and the fig tree, but all these others. So all branches of the church, all trees are men. 
are in spiritual disarray and trouble, just as they will be in the nation physically soon. So there's not much joy to be had. That's one of the fruits of the Spirit of God. But under these conditions, it's hard to be full of joy, isn't it? Now we can joy in the hope that is before us, but in terms of joying in how wonderful a shape the church is in, we're in trouble. And it's everywhere. It's here, it's there, it's everywhere. Now what are we going to do about it? Is there anything we can do about it? Gird yourselves and lament, you priests. Howl, you ministers of the altar. Come lie all night in sackcloth, you ministers of my God, for the meat offering and the drink offering is withheld from the house of your God. There he talks about sanctifying a fast and so on. Things are so bad. Well, we have done that from time to time. Uh, we did it in CGG once after I read this uh, in a sermon. I think we've done it once or twice even here since the year 2000. When, you know, when is the moment? When is the final time for that? Things were bad and things haven't really gotten better. Verse 15, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand, and as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. Is not the meat cut off before our eyes? Yes, joy and gladness from the house of our God. We had much to joy in and revel in and pass news about how fast the work was growing back in the 50s and 60s and even 70s and how wonderful things were. But that all changed. It's all different now. The seed is rotten under their clods. The garners are laid desolate. The barns are broken down for the corn is withered. The beasts groan. The flocks of sheep are desolate. And the pastures of the wilderness and the trees of the field have been burned. In other words, total desolation to the church. So it's kind of the reverse of what we're looking for. Now let's go to Joel 2, and I'll pick it up in verse 12. Uh, verse 1, first though, it says, Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in all my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord comes and is near. A time of great fear, trepidation, concern, because we understand all the horror that is about to be unleashed around the world, and especially in this nation, which is going to be the first to fall when this thing is ushered in, which appears to be quite soon. Already has to the church and is almost there with the nation. So then he talks about more pain and trouble and difficulty. Then in verse 12 he says, Therefore also now, says the Eternal, Turn you even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart, and not your garments, and turn to the Eternal your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow in anger, and of great kindness, and relents him of the evil. Now we've seen this in Jeremiah and other places, that when things are bad, the required response from God is that we give up our idolatry and selfishness and we turn to Him with our whole heart and rend our hearts. We don't rend someone else's, we rend our own. Okay? That's the emphasis. 
You can only turn one person's heart to God completely and totally, and that's your own. So it's not talking about anybody but you. not talking about anybody but me. It's an individual matter. And as Ezekiel 33 points out, God will judge each of us individually. Not as a whole, not as a group, not father over son or son over father, but each individual. So it is a personal plea here, very personal. Who knows if we repent, and that's the way he puts it there in Zephaniah 2, is it not? He says that we are to flee and gather ourselves together before this horror comes on the nation. And maybe, if we're humble, God will see fit to protect us. There's always a maybe in there. And it is based upon our compliance and the wholeheartedness of that compliance. Who knows if he will return and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a meal offering and a drink offering to the eternal, your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, those that suck the breasts. Let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. Forget about all the things that you're doing in life. Put God first. There comes a time when it is such a critical issue that you had better forget everything else and seek God with all your heart. I think that time is very, very near. God always gives a space for repentance. But at some point, that space ends and His judgment comes. That space ended in the church and His judgment came upon it. That space is now coming, has been on the nation, and is at, it is at its end now. And all we can do is turn to God and pray and hope and trust. That's where we are. Some of these things we've been reading about in the alternative media that are coming on this nation and that we've been reading about in these scriptures are coming on this nation and they're imminent and they will not go away. As we read earlier, it will happen. It, doesn't, it isn't just an illusion. It isn't a fantasy. Death will come. You've experienced it spiritually in the church, watched it all around you, and almost died yourself. So it's real. And if it happened to us in the church, it's going to happen to our nation around us. So he's saying this is a very, very serious time we're in. Let the priests, the ministers, verse 17, weep between the porch and the altar, and let them say, Spare your people, O Eternal, and give not your heritage to reproach, that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? Now, we understand God's truth, and yet we've not been delivered entirely, have we? We've been delivered, a few of us, from the clutches of the cities that are about to be destroyed before our eyes, 
and we would have been in them had God not, not God showed us we needed to get out of there and get away. But we still haven't reached the kind of deliverance that we desire, have we? Not on your life. We want more. Then will be, then will the Eternal be jealous for his land and pity his people. And he will remove the reproach, verse 19. And we'll move the, far, the northern army, verse 20. And then he says in verse 21, Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Eternal will do great things. Be not afraid, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring, for the tree bears her fruit, the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. So that which we have been going through is going to come to an end. And God is going to begin to bless again. So even as in Joel, he says, the vine and the fig tree languish and are stripped bare. Even so, when we get through this horrible time, if we turn to God with our whole heart and He relent, then blessing will come and the tree will again flourish and the vine will yield their strength. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the eternal your God, for he has given you the former rain moderately and will cause down to come down the former and the latter in the, last, in the first month. Then he talks in verse 28 and down through 31, just before the day of the Lord, he'll pour out his spirit, and young men and old men and young ladies and so on will have dreams and visions and exciting things from God before the end of this age comes. So Joel starts out pretty dire, just as we find ourselves, and our nation is about to find itself, and then it gets better. But it gets better for the church. We need to understand that. For spiritual Israel, it gets better in this age, before it all ends. It doesn't get better for the rest of the nations of Israel and the world until Christ returns and the millennium starts. So there are two renewals. One spiritually, just like the destruction came first. The renewal in the church comes first. Then the destruction on the nation comes, and that is resolved and blessing returns during the millennium for the physical peoples of the earth. So this is what we're looking at, and we'll see that as we go on here. Uh, let's see. I think that's as far as I wanted to go on Joel. Now let's go to Micah 4. He talks in 12 about how Zion will be plowed as a field. The church is going to be just like you had a tractor and a bunch of plows run over it. And that's the way it is today. Now let's go to chapter 4. But in the last days, not after they're over, but in the last days, it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the eternal shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow to it. So here he's talking about a time when God's people, God's government, God's church will be established in the last days, people will come. Well, we're going to go to Haggai here in a few moments, and we'll see that as well. 
Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Eternal and to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth of Zion and the word of the Eternal from Jerusalem. Now that's the true Jerusalem, the real Jerusalem. There aren't many people that understand that, but it's right here in this area. I think you all know it. I hope you have grasped it. It's hard to realize, and some have even seen that this is the true Zion, and yet they can't accept that the true Jerusalem would be near the true Zion. How do you have one without the other? Uh, But that's another issue. And he shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations or peoples shall not lift up a sword against other people or nations, neither shall they learn war anymore. This is a time of peace within the last days. It is not worldwide peace but peace within the remnant of God's church that are called together to finish the work. Now they, spiritual Israel, will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. There will come a time when the people of God will quit fighting and warring among themselves decrying each other's organizations and each other, and people doing the same thing even in the same congregations, and they will turn their swords into plowshares and their spear tongues into pruning hooks. In other words, peace will arise. They will learn the way to peace and the righteousness of God here in the last days. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Eternal of hosts has spoken it. Now there's the implication that there will be those around who could cause fear, but they don't. And he tells us in several places that we are to be strong, that we are to fear not, that we are to be of good courage, and we are to work. Now, you wouldn't need those four things if you're in the millennium when this is talking about. There'd be nothing to fear. You wouldn't need good courage because the government of God would be on the earth. So he's still talking about a time when there is something to fear and to need good courage But they will have peace, and they will not be chewing on one another anymore. God says that is true for the church. End time prophecy for right now. For all people will walk everyone in the name of his God, and we will walk in the name of the eternal our God forever and ever. So once this starts... The people who in this age, at the end time, learn to live at peace and love among themselves 
are going to be that way forevermore because they will be changed when Christ returns in a moment, a twinkling of an eye. So the peace that we are here to learn, brethren, is something that will always be. Once we attain to it, once we beat our plowshares, I mean our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks, to harvest good things, to produce, to build each other, and harvest goodwill, good feeling, the fruit of the Spirit, once we do that and learn peace among ourselves, then it will remain. Once we learn it, we won't turn loose of it. We'll hang on to it. What is it going to take for us to do that? We learned that in Joel. Turn to God with our whole hearts, individually, and come to have His love, His concern, His kindness, His peace, instead of the backstabbing and wars and gossip and fighting that we tend to have throughout the church, including here. We are not immune, brethren, any more than anybody else is, because we, too, were Laodiceans. I'm not going to blow smoke up your nose and tell you that this group is different than all the others and we don't have to repent because we're the good guys to start with. No, I am a reforming Laodicean. I was just as bad as anyone else and may still be. We have to work on it, don't we? We have to overcome it and turn to God with all our heart. And I believe that we have not yet done that. If we did and do, we will see God relent and begin to bless us. I hope that is soon. It does say, I think, at the end of Hosea that they will turn to him early. When all this comes down, we'll turn with all our hearts. I don't know. Is it going to take a vision of the destruction of our very land physically before our eyes? Can we just turn spiritually now to God? Or do we have to wait until the physical northern army comes on us and scares us bad enough that we finally turn to God? Time will tell. So the vine and the fig tree is to happen in this age. And I'm going to show you a scripture to absolutely nail that down here in a moment. Verse 7, In that day, says the Eternal, will I, assemble her, will I assemble her that halts, and I will gather her that is driven out, and her that I have afflicted. So he's going to begin to gather a church that he has afflicted. A, a 10% faithful remnant he will gather together. He's talking about that here. He spells it out exactly in other places. Says 10%. I think it's in Isaiah 6, in the last verse of Isaiah 6. 10%, a tithe. And her that was cast far off, a strong nation, and the eternal shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth even forever. So we asked before there in Jeremiah is there a bomb in Gilead? Is not the Lord in Zion? In Zion? 
No, not much, he's not. But that's going to change. We'll see it again here in a moment in Zechariah as well. It's going to change. And he will come and dwell in Zion with them. And it is in the end time, not just in the millennium. Verse 8, And you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto you shall it come, even the first dominion. The kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. So a microcosm of the kingdom of God that shall be in Christ's thousand-year reign is going to come first to the faithful part of the church, a remnant. And Christ will come and dwell with us and be there forevermore. Now why do you cry out, verse 9? Is there no king in you? Same question Jeremiah asked. Where's your king? Is not the Lord in Zion? Well, he hasn't been, not much. Why do you cry out? Is there no king in you? Is your counselor perished? For pangs have taken you as a woman in travail. Herbert Armstrong died, and Christ was not in what the Tkachas did, and he's not been much in the church since. When he is angry and scattering and destroying and bringing this on us, you can't say he's there dwelling with us in peace. Now, everyone would like to think, all the organizations, that God is here with us. God is doing this work. God is blessing our work. Wrong. He's not in any of them. Including right here. Shall we be honest? Shall we be real? Are we any better than anybody else? Do we show more love and compassion and kindness and gentleness? Have we beat our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks? Have we learned to control our tongues and our attitudes toward each other? How are we any better than anybody else? I ask you. Now let's all go crawl in a corner and eat worms and die. No, let's face reality. The dam has busted. What are we going to do about it? Sometimes I use bad grammar on purpose. Then what does he tell us in verse 10? Be in pain. Accept the birth pangs that have come upon us. A pregnant woman, especially the last two or three months, especially the last month, becomes awkward and frustrated and runs into things and you don't dare mention trucks or elephants around her. It becomes a very difficult process. I just watched my little dwarf goat get as wide as she was tall. And she had always just jumped around and up on things and run around and just had a good time jumping and playing. And boy, those last few weeks, she wouldn't get up in a chair. Mm. 
It was difficult for her. She didn't have the coordination. She didn't have the joy of life that she had had. She didn't even know what was coming. We did and watched. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail. For now shall you go forth out of the city, and you shall dwell in the open spaces... Go even to Babylon, don't leave it. There shall you be delivered. There the Eternal shall redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So he says, what the church is going through right now is like a woman coming down to birth. And then the pains start. They hit, and they're hard, and they're painful. But you have to strive to bring forth righteousness and Christ in us. That's what we have to bring forth in this birth that is occurring. So he says, when you feel the pain, the misery of the last month or two or three, the end of the pregnancy, there's a time to leave the cities and go dwell. And we here, at least, have made that step. doesn't say leave the country. Many places say flee Babylon, Isaiah 48, Jeremiah 50, 51, other places. But this one tells you directly, leave and go dwell in the uninhabited or the more wilderness open space areas, away from it. And when you are there, that is the place where you will be delivered. The whole remnant is going to come out here soon. Now also many nations are gathered against you and say, let her be defiled and let her... Let our eye look upon Zion. They know not the thoughts of the Eternal, neither understand they His counsel, for He shall gather them as the sheaves uh, into the floor. And tells her then to arise and thresh, and then the Assyrian is going to come in chapter 5 and will be repulsed as in the days of Gideon. So God says there that we'll have our own vine and fig tree. Now let's move on to... Let's go to Haggai first and set the stage for something else here. I'm going to run out of time, so I better hurry. <coughs> we all know the story in Haggai by now. Now God is going to appoint two, which, Zechari- which Zechariah 4 and Revelation 11 uh, describe ultimately as the two witnesses and a remnant of the people that are going to come to them once they get together and are ready to build the final temple, and that it will be done as the latter temple, now that worldwide is gone, and it will be the final work, and they will preach the gospel around the world as a witness, and then the end will come. We've been over those scriptures many times. And he says in verse 9, The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, says the Eternal of hosts, and in this place will I give peace, says the Eternal of hosts. So when the two witnesses and the remnant are together and begin building the spiritual temple, God will bring peace there. That is something that can be looked forward to, and it is before the end of the age and before Christ returns in glory. But it will have peace. Now he goes on to describe that and how we have to separate the clean from the unclean. And he comes down to a time in verse 15 of chapter 2. 
I pray you consider from this day and upward, from before a stone was laid upon a stone in the temple of the Eternal, since those days were when one came to a heap of twenty measures, and there were but ten. One came to the press vat for to draw out fifty vessels, and there were only twenty. Now, this sounds like Joel 1, doesn't it? I smote you with blasting and with mildew and with hail and all the labors of your hands. Yet you turned not to me, says the Eternal. So God has devastated the church. And he's speaking of that time just before the remnant is gathered together with the two witnesses, Joshua and Zerubbabel. God has brought the blasting and mildew and destruction upon the church because of us. Why? Because of sin. We've already read that. And because you turned not to me, says the Eternal. So the whole church at this point has not turned to God. They think they're worshiping God. They think they're doing God's work, and yet they don't even understand what the work is. God tells the two witnesses not to even go to the world, but to go to the church first and feed all seven churches there in Zechariah 4. And then later to go to the world. It makes it very clear in Revelation 11 that they are to deal with the church first, then they are to go to the world and die in the streets of Jerusalem after 1260 days of preaching the gospel around the world as a witness then the end shall come, as Matthew twenty four fourteen says. But he's referring here, he's just told us that he's going to gather the remnant under the leadership that he chooses, and it's going to be at a time when all of this destruction has occurred. And yet you didn't turn to God. The church hasn't turned. But 10% are going to, and soon. Okay? Because this is imminent. So then he gives some hope, verse 18, and it ties in with the scriptures about the vine and the fig tree. Consider now from this day and upward, from the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, even from the day that the foundation of the eternal's temple was laid, consider it. Now I think, personally, that the foundation for the latter temple began to be laid in 1992 in January. Now consider from that time other things. He's going to give us a clue here. Now remember we read there in Jeremiah how the summer is past, the fall, the harvest is done, the summer is past, and we have not been delivered. Remember that. Now what does he say? Consider from this day and upward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day the foundation of the Eternal's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed yet in the barn? Has there been a harvest? Has anything been produced? No. As yet the vine and the fig tree? No. The pomegranate and the olive tree has not brought forth. So he says, just as he brings the leadership and the remnant together to build the temple, consider the things that have gone on, and has anything been produced? No. Has it anywhere that you know of? Has it here? No. 
We moved out. We were blessed to some degree to have the knowledge we have, and we've had a certain amount of peace here. We have our own land, and we have our own vine and fig tree in that sense, and the opportunity at peace, it's just that we haven't accepted it very well, if you will. But as far as blessings from on high, I can't see that anywhere in the church has received the kind of blessings that Joel 2 talks about, that the other prophecies talk about, where suddenly it will be great production. Isaiah 51, for example, where he'll give us the Garden of Eden. Isaiah 35, where the lame walk and the deaf see and the blind hear. And he gives us the legs of deer. Those things that we read in those prophecies have not occurred in that way. Yes, we've been blessed with some better understanding, some good doctrine, some changes that fit the Bible. We can't say we haven't been blessed, but we haven't blessed, been blessed in terms of Joel 2 and Isaiah 51 and 35 and many other scriptures that talk about incredible blessings that will come. And he says... Just at this time, when he's considering the latter temple, from those day, from that day and forward. Now, the ninth and twenty-fourth usually falls toward the end of December. This year, because of the thirteenth month, <clears throat> it falls on the fourth of January. Summer, the, far, the harvest will have been finished physically. Feast of Tabernacles will have occurred after the fall equinox, summer will be over, and you will be in the time of fall, the ninth month, on the 4th of January, according to God's calendar. Will that be the time that God begins to bless and that the harvest begins to occur, the remnant gets together? As I said... I think the foundation may have been laid in January of 92. Will January of 15, 924, be a time when things turn around? I don't know. That's speculation. It's possible. The Scripture's been here for several thousand years, and you could speculate that every year. But it hasn't been here during a period of time heretofore, when the day of the Lord was imminent, when the destruction of the physical nation of Israel is at the doorstep and the northern coalition is preparing to come destroy us and we're being sold out by our own leadership as Jeremiah shows us. And it appears that it could happen within the next 12 months. So is this a critical year. Well, all I can say is I don't know for sure but I do know this, that we've already read the scriptures this very day, which tell us we need to turn to God with our whole heart, with our, all our mind, body, and soul. And we need to break our spears, our swords into plowshares, and our spears into pruning hooks. We need to get off each other and start living in peace and harmony and love, and maybe God will turn and relent and begin to bless. That's where we are. That's where these scriptures are. One more. 
Well, actually, maybe I'll hit two. I, I'll push it a little. It'll put me a little over an hour. I like to speak about an hour. Let's go to Zechariah 3. <clears throat> Last place that this is mentioned in specific, other than, well, perhaps one more. Zechariah 3. Here he addresses one of those who will be leading the remnant, Joshua, or one of the two witnesses, actually. And he says... Uh, He warns him to obey God. Verse 8, Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your fellows that sit before you, for they are men of signs and wonders. And I will bring forth my servant, the branch. So, right at the end, before he even introduces uh, the two in Zechariah 4, working together, he says that before Joshua and the men that sit before him, there will be signs and wonders given, okay? And bring forth the branch, which could be Christ himself, which ultimately is the key. It could also mean the other witness, the branch, who represents Christ in that sense. But he says the branch, and I think he's referring essentially to Christ. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Now, who is the stone? Christ is the rock. He's the chief cornerstone. So, Christ among the people, with this first leader, will be there. And seven eyes upon that one stone. In other words... The eyes of the churches of Revelation 2 and 3, and they're described that way, are going to be on Christ who comes there. Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, says the Eternal of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, says the Eternal of hosts, shall you call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. So whoever this Joshua character is, there will be signs and wonders done by the men who sit before him. And Christ will be there, and all seven eyes of the churches will turn there because of what Christ does there. And he will bring peace there. That's where he says he will bring it. We read about it in Haggai 2. So it's talking about the remnant of the church, the 10% faithful, and their leadership. But it starts with Joshua and the people that are there. And something occurs in terms of signs and wonders that causes the eyes of the church to begin to turn. And it says at the time of the turnaround, they will see eye to eye at the end of Isaiah 52, about verse 12 or 13, and come together to finish the work and to build the temple. Now notice Zechariah 2 just before that. He talks about how he'll be, verse 5, a wall of fire around and glory in the midst of her. Flee from the land of the north, says the Eternal, from Babylon. Get out, like we read in Micah 4. As I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, says the Eternal. So he's just scattered the church around the earth. 
Deliver yourself, O Zion, that dwell with the daughter of Babylon. One, the RSV says, Flee to Zion, you that dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Eternal of hosts, After the glory has he sent me to the nations which spoiled you, for he that touches you touches the apple of his eye. For behold, I will shake my hand upon them, and they shall be a spoil to their servants, and you shall know that I, the Eternal of hosts, or you shall know that the Eternal of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of you, says the Eternal, and many people will be joined to the Eternal in that day, and you'll be my people, and I will dwell in the midst of you, and you shall know that the Eternal of hosts has sent me to you. So Christ will be back in the church. He will come and dwell with the church. And the whole context here is in the time of the end when the remnant is gathered and God appoints leadership over the church and His mighty hand and works and miracles will turn the eyes of the churches to that great foundational stone, Christ Himself, who will be there. And he will bring peace in that place. We're already in the area. And we need to learn peace. We need to find peace. We need to repent and turn to God with our whole hearts so Christ can come dwell in us and do his signs and wonders, hopefully among us. If we fail to do that... He will bring others, I'm sure, to the same place because it will be in this place. But you and I have the knowledge, the understanding, to know what to do and how to go about it and turn our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks and not learn war anymore and trust God to bring peace in this place. We have that opportunity. And then we can dwell in peace under our vine and our fig tree.